Hello and welcome to another episode of Marcus and Alexander Explains. I'm your host, Jack Bannister, Marcus and Alexander's Head of Content. The Winter Olympics are underway in Beijing and it seems a far cry away from the Australian heat that we are witnessing here. So is anyone actually watching? If you had been, you would have noticed that several nations have instigated a diplomatic boycott of the Games owing to alleged human rights abuses by China against its Uyghur population. As well as those nations, many businesses are caught in a bit of a tangle about what to do while these games roll on and what sort of social responsibility should fall on their shoulders. Joining me today to have a little discussion about the Winter Olympics and the strategic communications challenges that surround them is Markson Alexander's founder and director, Steve Markson. Steve, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. And I've also got with me Elise Gatt, Marcus and Alexander's newly minted senior associate. Welcome, Elise. Thanks. Nice, nice to be here. So you're both political heads and you're both keen watchers of all things that are going on in the world. Is anyone actually paying attention to the Winter Olympics while we bake in the middle of a hot Australian summer? Oh, look, I have to admit that I've watched it a little bit. Uh, I haven't engaged that much. Um, I think people are watching it, and I think you know, uh, there's there's a, an interest, uh, a very specific interested audience in the Winter Olympics. That's the problem. That's the difference between the Winter and the Summer Olympics, I suppose. I'm gonna at this point make a confession to both of you, but also to um, all the audience that watches Emma Explains, and that is that I have been watching Married at First Sight um, <laughs> instead of watching the uh, Winter Olympics in Beijing. So, you know, I do love sport. I can't, and, and I do like snow sports. I can't say that um, I've been watching it closely though. But Jack, having said that, I reckon, you know, Australians at large love their sport. And I don't reckon Channel 7 would be, um, you know, airing so much of the Olympics if, if there wasn't the viewership. So I, you know, if I, if I was a betting man, which I have to say that I am during the spring carnival, I'd say that Aussies love their sport. And even for the Aussies who don't like winter sports, I reckon they'll be watching the uh, Olympics in droves. One of the narratives that's been going on around these games is of course centered on the diplomatic boycott. Given that that's kind of now been probably the most talked about thing for a number of months, and even the fact that we're having this conversation, is it is it fair to say that a geopolitical move like that that's come from Australia, the United States, the UK and several other allies is actually going to be somewhat effective, um, particularly in kind of raising awareness of humans right, human rights abuses that China is allegedly committing? I think from my perspective, I, I don't think it's going to change things um, in China. I think this is sort of a, a single engagement on a broader strategy uh, for, the, for the global population. Um, you know, it's it, it's part of, um, you know, the human rights issue is obviously very important and obviously something that some, the rest of the audience, uh, you know, like a, a lay audience can pick up on. Um, but there's other issues that are going on with China, right? The, you know, the rising threat of China in the region, um, you know, domestically, there's trade wars that have been going on with Australia and China for quite a while. Um, and I think so. I think this this is uh, just another tool in the toolbox um, of diplomatic relations and and. Um, and, and I think if, if things, if they didn't do this, if, they, if the gov if countries hadn't, um, you know, done this, there would be a, uh, a bit of a backlash, a bit of a, a call of hypocrisy, I think, from the broader community when there's so much else going on um, in terms of the relationship with China. I can't remember the precise 
um, episode, let alone the season of the West Wing. In fact, I think it is in season one where, you know, President Bartlett is sort of challenged for the first time to respond to um, an attack on American citizens overseas. And there's this whole concept of, you know, proportionate response. What is the virtue of a proportional response? Why is it good? And I think that, you know, the points that Elise makes are good ones to, insofar as, you know, will it change anything in China? Um, it probably won't. But I do think that it has been a suitably proportionate response and it has had some effect, you know, not least because we're talking about it today. Um, and we have also seen, you know, widespread mainstream media coverage um, you know, across Australia on the Olympics and, and also to some extent around the human rights aspects to the Olympic Games. And I think that's a good thing, you know. Um, I've got no doubt it'll be politicised by major political parties in a federal election year. But, you know, I think that's a good thing because it means that, you know, the next time there is a human rights violation, the next time as a country we're working through how we balance those human rights considerations with our economic interests, um, you know, it's important that all Australians are broadly aware of what is going on so that, you know, we can make the best decisions possible. So, you know, I think it's a proportionate response. I don't think it's everything that could be done. Uh, but on balance, I think that, you know, those nations who have boycotted have probably gotten about right. My only kind of counter to that would be if these are allegations of genocide, which they are, would an athlete boycott perhaps have been more effective or more proportionate? And, and the risk of kind of drawing too long a bow, I, I, in answering that question, I um, think of the, uh, you know, the, the way that we traditionally approach political uh, issues here in Australia, and that is, um, and you know, we saw last night Scott Morrison doing his long form interview with his family on 60 Minutes, where, you know, the point was made there, and the same point I would make now, which is, you know, we typically keep families out of poli political issues, and. I think an extension of that is to keep athletes out of political issues. Now, there, there are appropriately some athletes who choose to proactively engage in political issues, um, you know, and, and that's a good thing. But I think in terms of, um, you know, nations making decisions about political issues on behalf of their athletes, I think that gets complex very, very quickly. But I think it misses a, a bigger point, which is, that, you know, sport transcends politics. You know, sport is about something that brings, in the case of the Olympics, nation states together. Um, and, you know, appropriately, people are going to be talking about those issues, Jack, that you, you talk about, you know, around genocide and human rights. Um, but I, I don't think that we should put athletes in the middle of that debate. I think that's something for countries to decide. One of the things that you mentioned there is kind of whether athletes should be expected to weigh in or to, you know, boycott. They're obviously barred at the Olympics from making political statements. And I'm gathering from what you said there, Steve, you're quite happy for the individual athletes to make a decision as to whether they should make political statements. There's no kind of belief that they should inherently have to comment on something like this. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the... Um the incredible power of the, the, the black power um, salute at the 1968 Olympics, you know, those very brave athletes. I mean, you think about us talking about this in 2022, imagine what life was like in, um, 
you know, in, in those days in 1968. So again, I, I think that if athletes want to weigh in, if they want to have a say, then they should do that. I, I also think for completeness that that goes for spectators and supporters as well. Um, but I also just think that, you know, the reality is that some athletes don't want to weigh in. And so I think therefore that we risk compromising, you know, their performance ultimately, but also really what the Olympics means if we sort of have countries taking positions on behalf of um, all of their athletes as opposed to as sort of in their diplomatic capacity. It was interesting that you raised the 1968 Olympics. Um, Peter Norman, uh, who was, on, you know, who got silver and was one of the ones who was uh, supporting um, the two African-American athletes, was ostracised by the Australian Olympic Committee and the Australian um, uh, community uh, until well after his death in, in 2018 when the AOC or, you know, issued in the Order of Merit. The risk for an athlete of standing up at the Olympics against something is great. Uh, and also you, you think about the other side of that. They're also, you know, um, sacrificing years of training and, 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 you know, maybe their one shot of being at the Olympics. So it's, it's a really complex issue, I think. So we spoke there and you mentioned the risk that athletes face in making political statements. For businesses that are somewhat enshrined within the Olympic movement and have been long-term sponsors. This is, this is a pretty tricky one. So, you know, there are five US-based sponsors, including Coke, Intel, Airbnb, Procter & Gamble, and Visa, who have said very little um, about their role with these games. Is that the approach that you would take, Steve? How can, how can they acknowledge their own, you know, corporate social responsibility without the kind of threat of ostracizing you know, potentially the Chinese market, which would have a huge cost to their businesses. I think more and more we are seeing, you know, human rights issues becoming commercial issues. Um, and I think that's a good thing because I think that, you know, part of change in uh, any society has to be across, you know, all of civil society. And I think that, um, you know, business community plays, plays a big part of, of that. Um, I think notwithstanding that, you know, if I was advising those five companies in that very delicate situation, I think the couple of things I'd say is firstly to make sure their own house is in order. So if I think about some of those companies who are actually tied up in this Beijing Olympics and who have had, you know, these questions put to them, um, a number of them have, you know, supply chains and manufacturing and production that takes place in China. So we need to make, you know, my advice would be to, that we need to make sure that that company absolutely has got its own house in order in terms of its supply chains and making sure there are no um, human rights or indeed any other violations that are taking place. But I, but I also think, you know, as a business, Michael St. Alexander provides, you know, frank and fearless advice to companies. And I think I'd also say that those organisations should keep their heads down, you know, I mean, um, where they can find a sweet spot between their commercial interests and taking a proactive and, and you know positive position on the human rights agenda, absolutely that should be pursued. But I think as soon as a company does weigh into the human rights paradigm, then as you pointed out, Jack, in your question, there can be um, very, very significant consequences for that. And I think importantly, through some of the behavior that we've seen from the Chinese government, uh, you know, those consequences are not easily reversed or undone. Um, they can be absolutely lasting. And, you know, this is where we come to the point in the tension of rights, you know. So we absolutely want to make sure there are no human rights, um, you know, violations for the Uyghur people. But also we know that 
one of the extraordinary things that the Chinese government has done in recent times is to throw open the doors of their economy that has lifted literally tens of millions of Chinese into the middle class, you know? And so that if we had a situation where a company was no longer able to operate in China, then that could literally mean that there were tens of thousands of Chinese who were suddenly without a job and all that that involves and, and the impacts of that for their families and, and for those communities and those economies. So, so it is complex. And I think the final closing bit of advice I would say to um, any company in this situation is to monitor it very, very carefully, you know, and um, that's both insofar as monitoring for risks and opportunities that may present themselves during the Olympics. For example, if there was a, a shift of some sort, I don't know what that would be, but you know, if something shifted, then you absolutely want to make sure that as a company, you're, you're not caught flat footed and you can respond quickly. And of course, um, you need to make sure you're keeping an eye on what your competitors are doing because if competitors in the market take a different position then you know wherever possible and certainly consistent with the advice we provide as a firm we want to position our companies to be at the front of the pack you know leading the way um, you never want to be playing catch-ups um, so you know for example if there was a company that came out and took a very strong position on human rights and you know they were able to make that um, work and ultimately be commercial, then you'd want to be making sure that the company that we represented uh, was ready to not, if, if not do that themselves, to definitely be able to respond to that very quickly. I think I would just add that, you know, I think the business, we're, we're moving to a place where, you know, the, the broader community expects businesses to, to, to live their values and not compromise on their values. Um, and it's a really, really tricky space. Uh, I've come from the, the energy sector where, you know, operates in, in some pretty, uh, in some uh, countries that, 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 uh, that require um, a heavier level of, of, of investigation before you invest in there. And, and it is a, um, it, it, it's hard to sort of balance that, you know, that, that the, you know, sticking, holding on to your values and holding on to a company's values and making sure that you're doing the right thing by, you know, by, by uh, what your, where your money goes. Um, uh, but also trying to make make money, um, and 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 as Steve said, following on, uh, you know, making sure you're up with your competitors. Um, I think as we move forward, though, there's going to be a lot more pressure from um, from customers that companies do, you know, do measure up. And just kind of speaking to both of those points, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute has identified 82 foreign and Chinese companies that directly or indirectly benefit from Uyghur workers in abusive labour transfer programs, which. I think speaks to what you said, Steve, about making sure your own house is in order as a first port of call, because obviously if you've got a, you know, an ethical issue in terms of your supply chains, that's a very hard thing to paper over. And as a business, you do have responsibility to, to look after that. I might move the conversation on now to talk a little bit about the IOC. And we picked this up right at the start of Marcus Alexander Explains when we discussed Tokyo 2020. Uh, the IOC is always looking for gold medals to, to paper over any potentially negative uh, media attention. Uh, is there anything they can do specifically in this situation to maintain their reputation and their credibility? There's been a lot of uh, attention and focus on whether these games should have moved to a different host city. It's a tricky one. The IOC is a, uh, a slow-moving beast. It's a, a you know, it's it's um, it's grounded in in in, in lots of. Uh, complex history um you know should they have changed the city Post probably um you know uh, personally i think that they should have would they have 
very unlikely because I think then that opens up a door to you know um, uh, a lot of countries you know questioning whether it's worth um, uh, hosting Olympic Games. There's a lot of risk involved, a lot of investment, a lot of money um, in hosting Olympic Games. If you know that they, they then the Olympic Committee decides politically something in their country is, is going to not work well for the Olympics, uh, the you know the Olympic brand, um, our country is going to stop um, hosting Olympics. Um, it's a tricky one. I don't. I'm not sure what. What would I advise the IOC to do? I'd advise I'd advise them to start thinking about progressive ch changing, changing how they operate, um, and starting to look um, and starting to be to, to be a bit more um, uh, starting to look into countries and looking into host countries and options like that a bit more rigorously before the decision is made. I think after a decision is made to, for a country to host a, an Olympics because of the amount of investment in it, it's it's a really tricky thing to change. And they always tend to throw behind the, the political neutrality of the games or hide behind the political neutrality of the games as their catch-all. I'll ask you kind of a couple of final questions to wrap up. So, Steve, at the opening ceremony, China enlisted a Uyghur athlete to light the Olympic flame. That was an obvious attempted deflection. Uh, the female athlete in question then disappeared and hasn't been made available for media comment. Would you suggest that stunt was advisable? I, I would just come out and say whichever public relations uh, firm was engaged by the Chinese government or indeed whichever public relations arm of government was advising on that, uh, you know, it should be sacked. I mean, that is just a really terrible move. Um, it's in poor taste. Um, it represents, in my view, a very opportunistic attempt to try and you know, cover up, frankly, what are some incredibly difficult human rights, um, you know, concerns in China. And I think that my, my first thought actually is for the individual, cons you know, involved, and, and I hope they're okay. And, you know, we saw on 60 Minutes last night, you know, after our long form uh, story on Scott Morrison, the story of Peng Shui, and, you know, the um, high profile, well, number one Chinese um, tennis player who you know, has got many questions around her well-being, her well-being um, after she, after she exposed alleged rape allegations against a high-profile, um, you know, Chinese official. So, I, to answer your question, Jack, I, I think it was um, very, very, um, yeah, it was very, very poor, and I and I really uh, I do feel for the individuals concerned. I, I don't think it's a it's a. Um strategic comms kind of issue i think it's it's reprehensible what happened and i think it's it's um you know uh, I, I i don't think you you know obviously your advice on that situation would would be of yes uh, engage the community that's absolutely affected um but you know making sure there's actually a you know change and there's actually remediation happening with that community and not just a um a pr stunt um and yeah it's 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 a it's a tricky one to answer from a strategic comms perspective just because of how how horrible it is so that's all we've got time for today thank you both for joining me it's been a, it's been a real pleasure um and make sure our listeners if you are someone that has tuned in today make sure you like and subscribe to the show we'll be back in another couple of weeks with another episode of Mike's and alexander explains to break down another um, pressing issue 